We're going to pick up in John chapter 2. And we're just taking a, a, a deeper dive into the book of John. We're just trying to go verse by verse, try to keep things in context, try to enjoy the Lamb of God. That's the whole title of the sermon series is Behold the Lamb. We want your eyes lifted vertically during this whole series. We want you to see the wonder of who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ accomplished. That's the whole purpose of the book. This is why John wrote it. And last week we saw Jesus come in and clean house a little bit, right? He comes in, he, he cleanses the temple. The religious leaders demand a sign. He says, you know what? There'll be a sign, but it's going to be three years down the road. It's going to be my resurrection. Although they didn't think he was talking about his resurrection. They thought he was talking about the temple. And it's the way he worded it that I think confused them. So they were looking for a divine sign to, to back up his claim for divine authority for why he cleansed the temple. And he immediately, with this action of cleansing the temple, got on the radar screen of the religious leaders. Before that, he was kind of unknown. He was quiet. Remember this first miracle, water to wine? Only a a small group of people even knew that he had done that. Now he kind of announces his presence with authority. He's running people out. He's, He's taking care of cleansing the temple. And he points to the ultimate sign. Now, what's interesting, as we literally flip the verse to verse 23. Now, Jesus is going to provide lots of signs to the multitudes. He wouldn't give the religious leaders one sign. They were looking for like razzmatazz, razzle-dazzle, something, you know, that he would do just miraculously right there in that moment. He wouldn't give it to him. He pointed them to the resurrection, the ultimate sign. But then he goes about his ministry. We don't have a lot of detail, but we see that he starts interacting with the multitudes and he does signs multiple, plural, that are very convincing to the multitude. But as we go into the section this morning, it's so easy to get distracted by the signs. And that's really probably not even the main point of the message today or the main point of this section. The main point, I think, is I tried to encapsulate in the title, it's the keen insight of Jesus. We're going to see a couple of phrases here, here as we close out John chapter 2, that Jesus knew all men. That Jesus, at the end of verse 25, knew what was in man. And what we're going to look at is as we go forward in the book of John, we are going to be seeing the keen insight of Jesus Christ into humankind. He's got insight. We're going to see that not only as he deals with Nicodemus, this self-righteous religious Pharisee on one end of the social spectrum in that day, but then as we spill into chapter 4, with the licentious, immoral Samaritan woman on the other end of the social spectrum of the day. And we're going to see he knows people. He gets people. He's got insight into what makes people tick. And see, as one commentator said, the great physician can read people better than any human doctor can diagnose symptoms. Jesus Christ, if you want to say it this way, he knows how to slice the bread. He knows how to butter the toast. He gets to it. He gets right to the issue at hand. We'll get introduced a little bit to that this morning as we crack into the story with Nicodemus. Let's turn, though, to verse 23, and let's read. He's going to do some observable and verifiable signs, plural. There's an S on the end of that word in verse 23. It says, now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. And so this is exactly the same trip. He had just cleansed the temple. He stays around for the Passover feast. Now he's doing many signs. And it says that when they saw the signs that he did, it's interesting word. The text 
says the people saw it. Literally, they gazed with special interest like a spectator. The idea is that they carefully observed what he was doing and they paid attention to detail. That's what comes through in this word saw. And not only that, but this word is used 57 times in the New Testament. Almost half of the word usage is in John. 23 times the book of John uses this exact word to describe how they saw these signs. And it fits very well with the purpose, right? What's the purpose of John? Well, we're going to read it here in a little bit, but John 20 verses 30 through 31, John recorded hand-selected seven specific signs for what purpose? So that his readers and us, by implication, would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might get something out of it. What do you get out of it? Eternal life. Now, is that something you and I deserve? No. <laughs> Uh, unequivocally, we can say no, that nobody deserves eternal life. Not even the pastor. Trust me, not even the pastor. Not even either of our pastors. <laughs> we don't deserve eternal life. Nobody does. That's the great gift of God through the grace of God, giving you and I something we don't deserve because he gave Jesus what you and I deserved, which was death and punishment. He gave Jesus that so he could give you something you don't deserve. That's grace. And so it fits very well. This word see fits very well with the purpose of John, that they're gazing intently like a spectator. They're watching closely what he's doing as he does the signs. Now, what's fascinating to me about this is back in verse 18, if you recall, the religious leaders asked for a sign. They said, you claim this authority, show us a sign. Jesus does not acquiesce to their request at that point. But later... He's doing multiple signs that are verifiable, observable. And guess where the religious leaders are? Not anywhere to be found. If they were really interested in validating and verifying who Jesus Christ was, don't you think they'd be paying attention a little bit to these miraculous signs that everyone else is getting convinced of, but they're nowhere to be found? Except for one, we're going to meet him in chapter three. If you look ahead at verse two, Nicodemus took notice. Nicodemus was sensitive to what was going on. He was paying attention a little bit. And so we'll get to Nicodemus when we get there. Now, based on, and this is really interesting because go back to verse 23. I want you to see this in, the, in your own Bibles. But why did they believe in Jesus? What's the exact reason given in verse 23 for why they believed in his name? Well, it's right there, right? It's because of what? It's because of the signs which he did. It's because of the signs that they saw him, which he did. And this is the exact reason, by the way, that John wrote his gospel. This is the exact reason. He's doing the same exact thing that Jesus was doing in his life, doing signs, verifying, validating who he was so people would believe in him. It's the same thing that's happening here in verse 23. Same reason John wrote his gospel. And the only reason I bring that up is because many people, this is actually, whether you realize or not, it's one of the most debated passages in the entire book of John. You believe that? The one we're looking at right here. It seems pretty clear at face value. We'll kind of develop this more. But notice this, many people believed in his name. So they observed these signs closely. As a result, they believed in his name. Again, if we're just taking the text at face value, if we're taking the purpose of John at face value, that means in this moment, they got saved. They're saved. Because salvation is by grace, how? Through faith. Through faith. And so in this moment, they got saved. In fact, as we look at this phrase more, 
in the book of John, this phrase believed in, it's a Greek phrase, pastuo ice. Pastuo means to believe. Ice actually is a preposition that means into, or can be translated in or into is kind of the idea. This phrase is used over 30 times in the book of John, all describing genuine salvation. In other words, when you take the preponderance of the evidence and the use in the book of John, you look at the other 29 uses of this phrase, it reflects genuine salvation. So there'd have to be something in the context for someone to say this isn't genuine salvation. And let me tell you what that something is. So I can kind of preempt you if you haven't seen it yet. It's verse 24. They believed in him, but what does verse 24 say? But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. What people will say is somehow that when, when they believed, Jesus knew what was in them. He knew it wasn't genuine faith. That's how some people will take the passage. Okay, so let's kind of work through that uh, a little bit more. So these people were convinced by the very things that they should have been convinced of. With Jesus in person, doing things, preaching, validating, verifying with signs, this is exactly what the Messiah was prophesied to be doing. We're going to look at that in a passage where Jesus refers John the Baptist back to the miracles that he was performing as a proof that he was fulfilling Old Testament prophecy, right? So this is exactly what they were to be convinced of. In fact, to believe in his name, that's an interesting phrase. We don't talk that way, but the Bible uses that phrase often. It meant to trust or rely upon not only who he was, but what he had done and what he would do. In fact, to believe in his name makes Jesus the object of personal faith. See, your faith, my faith without the right object is no good. I can believe that a tree can save me. Well, that tree is not a savior. I can believe that religion can save me. Well, that religion is not a savior. I can believe that a church can save me. That church is never described as a savior in the Bible. There's only one savior. His name's Jesus Christ. And saviors do what by definition? They save you. They save you. And so the Bible wants you to trust in a Savior who is the only one who can save you. And this is what we're talking about when it talks about believing in his name. His name and reputation are, are clear from the preceding context. He's the Messiah. He's the Savior of the world. Some people will take this faith as described in verse 23 and say it's an inadequate faith. They'll say it's not genuine They'll say it's not legit. And the reason they say it's not legit is because they believed because of signs and they say that's not a good faith. Well, why did John write his book? If that's a, a strong argument, then the very reason that John wrote his book would be inadequate or faulty. And that's, that's, that can't be true. And so there was nothing at all wrong or faulty with this response. In fact, I just want to walk through the book of John, walk through a couple of passages really quickly. You can just jot down the, the reference here. And, and, and see these verses. John chapter 2, verse 11. We've already covered in this study, but this beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. And he manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. You see their faith in him tied to the signs that he did. That it just validated and verified who he was and what he was going to do. This is that passage I referenced in Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 5. And when John, John the Baptist, heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said to him, are you the coming one or do we look 
for another. Now, I love the way Jesus answers this question. Like the greatest teacher that's ever lived. He could have just said, yes. But what does he do? He basically takes John the Baptist and he says, John, put your nose in the word of God. I want to take your nose and I want to put it in the Old Testament word of God because this is what he says. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see, the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. What did Jesus just do? He just put John the Baptist's nose in the book and just referenced all the prophecies that the Old Testament said the Messiah would do. And he's saying, you know what, John? You make your conclusion. I'm him. And this is the proof. He points them to the miracles and the signs that he's doing. Look at John chapter 10, verses 37 through 38. If I do not do the works of my father, do not believe me. But if I do, now notice this next phrase. But if I do the works, though you do not believe me, believe the works. In other words, If you can't trust me, look at the works that I'm doing and use that as a motivation to trust in me. See, he's pointing them back to miracles. And he says that you may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. John 12, 37 kind of approaches it from a negative view. As we kind of get through the end of the book of signs and the book of John, that that first section, he says, but although he had done so many signs before them, they did not believe in him. See, that's a negative thing that they didn't believe the signs. That was, that was what they were designed to do was to convince people to believe in them. And then, of course, we know the purpose statement in the book of John. John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, whether or not they, you know, when they believed in Jesus, did they understand everything doctrinally? Probably not. When you trusted in Christ for salvation, did you understand everything doctrinally? Did you still have some misapprehensions about what the Christian life was going to be all about? You know, many of us got saved and we thought, man, this is great. Jesus died for me, rose again. And now if I want a Lamborghini, I just ask him for one. He's going to give it to me. And now if I want my 401k built up, I just ask him to do it. He's going to give it to me. And if I want my my wife to look like a supermodel, he's going to change the molecular structure of what she looks like. And if I want X amount of dollars in my bank account, he's going to miraculously do it. And now I can eat Cheetos and it's not going to hurt my stomach and it's not going to make me fat. And Jesus is just the genie in a bottle, right? He's going to do everything. And oftentimes there's this misapplication. And that's exactly what I think is going on with this group that we're reading about in verse 23. Because as we get into verse 24, we see this phrase that Jesus did not commit himself or Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Verse 24, but Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. What this is saying is even though many people had believed in Jesus, he didn't entrust himself to them. And the reason why, as we're going to look at closely, is he knew what was in man. He knew all men. And then we're going to see in verse 25, he knew what was in man. Well, what's interesting about this word commit is it actually translates the same verb believe in verse 23. It says they didn't believe in him, but verse 23, he didn't believe in them. You can, I mean, literally you can translate it, but it's, that is he didn't entrust himself to them. 
And what's also interesting is because this word commit is used in the imperfect tense in the Greek. It means that he continually kept on in the past not entrusting himself to them. It's kind of a, an interesting wording there. The question is, what does this mean? Why did he not entrust himself to them? What, did he, what does that mean that he didn't entrust himself to them? Well, this is where kind of the debate comes. This is why this, this, this whole passage is debatable. I'm going to try to give you the other side's argument in two arguments summarily. Now, I'm not trying to hold up a straw man that I can knock down. I just don't think it's a strong argument. So I'm going to try to do my best to represent their argument here. The argument goes something like this. If their faith was saving faith, then Jesus would have entrusted himself to them. And because he didn't entrust himself to them, then there's something inadequate about their faith. That's kind of their argument, the other side, the other version. The second argument is this, that faith based on seeing miraculous signs is not good enough faith. It's superficial. It's not deep enough. It's not genuine enough. That's, that's the other side's argument. That's how they would approach this passage. So they would say Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because he knew that they didn't believe the right way or for the right reasons or for the right motives. That's the argument. I don't agree with that at all, but that is the argument. Now, the question becomes this, and I, I want to be careful because you, you can be, we can be obnoxious and arrogant about what I'm about to say, but I'm really trying. I, I don't want to be that way. I really want to be genuine here. We need to find a textual argument and a contextual argument, not a theological argument for this passage. You see, the difference is this. When we go to the text of the word of God, it should dictate what our theology becomes. The problem with many believers, we're all potentially guilty of it. And that's why I say humbly, we need to be careful, is we have a theology that we now try to drive into the text. That's dangerous. That's what a lot of people do, in my opinion, in this passage. So the question is, is there a good textual reason that Jesus didn't entrust to him? Is there something contextual in the book of John that would aid us in our understanding of why he would not entrust himself to people who had believed in him? What is the reason? Well, one textual, uh, one potential answer is although they were believers, they were not trustworthy. We learn later in the book of John that, that many believers succumbed to potential pressure by the religious leaders. They wouldn't come out boldly in their faith. In fact, go to John chapter 12. This is a potential reason of why Jesus didn't entrust himself to these believers. Look at verse 42 of John chapter 12. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. And so one answer is Jesus, they weren't trustworthy. They weren't ready to take a stand publicly for him. And so you know, that's, that's really great. It's like, all right, onward, let's go. And then you look behind and no one's following you. you know, it's like, oops, I should, probably shouldn't have entrusted myself to them. So Jesus knew all men. He knew whom he could entrust his future and his destiny with and whom he couldn't. So that's one possible contextual answer. Another potential answer is that while many people in Jerusalem trusted in Jesus for their future, Jesus wasn't trusting in them for his future. Now, why wasn't Jesus trusting them for his future? Well, we know biblically that Jesus entrusted himself to who? Not Joe Bob Jew that lives down the street, but God the Father. 
He was entrusting his future to God the Father. God had a timetable for his life. God had a timetable for his death. Remember back in, even in John 2, he says, he tells his, his mom, my hour has not yet come. That's the Father's hour. That's Jesus dependent on the Father. So he's entrusting his future to God the Father, not unreliable people. I like what Chuck Swindoll said here. Jesus wasn't depending on a favorable response from anyone, the religious leaders or the masses, to complete his mission. He wasn't running for election. He didn't need popular support to claim the throne. He had no plans to train an army. He didn't entrust himself, his mission, or his future to humanity. He trusted his Father. And I think that's a a great fleshing out of this point. My favorite answer is the third one. This is actually the one that, that I hold to and I would teach. Why did he not entrust himself to these believers? Is because these believers were immature believers and they only wanted one thing at this point. And the one thing that they wanted was kingdom takeover and Roman disposal. That's what they wanted. In fact, Jesus didn't entrust himself to them because they had a mob rule mentality. And we're going to see in this verse that I'm about to bring up in John 6, 15, that they had this, this heart's desire to take Jesus and force him to be king. And that was not according to the Father's plan. Look at John six fifteen. Therefore, when Jesus perceived that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he departed again to the mountain by himself alone. You see, those who believed in Jesus, there were certain people who were so nationalistic in their thinking, pro-Israel. They wanted the Romans out of there. They despised Gentile rule. They wanted to go back to the good old days where it was just Jews in the land, reigned by a king, by Messiah. Now they recognize he's the Messiah and they're going to force the Messiah to do what they want to do on their timetable. And you think, well, that's crazy. But you know, New believers do that all the time due to immaturity. We got our own game plan. We got our own agenda. And I think that's exactly what Jesus understood in verse 24 and why he didn't entrust himself to them. There's this potential mob rule, mob reigning mentality. They were gonna force the timing of his reign. They were gonna force the timing of his hour and they couldn't be trusted with that. And this is, I think, all that this verse is saying, you'd think they'd trust in him and say, whatever your will is, Jesus, I'm in. You died for me, or you're going to die for me. You're going to solve the sin problem. We look back, Jesus, you died for me. You rose again. You would think that all of us would say, because you did that for me, your will be done. I'm in. What do you want to accomplish in my life? What do you want to do through my ministry? What, what do you want to do, Jesus? But oftentimes, we don't respond that way. I don't think this group responded this way. It's more like, I believe in you, and now I want you to force you, I want to force you what, to do what I want you to do. I want to force you to do what I already believed we should be doing before I believed in you. I'm going to force this agenda. And see, many new and immature believers think the same way. They, they get saved and expect Jesus Christ to be their genie in a bottle. And these, these believers in verse 23, I think were no different. Their genie in the bottle, though, was kick the Romans out, take over, Go Israel. <laughs> that was their genie in the bottle. They expected Jesus to do it. Now, we do have textually explain why Jesus didn't entrust himself. And it's summed up really in the next phrase there in verse 24. It says he knew all people. He knew all men or all mankind. And, and it's interesting, the word know that he uses here, it's to know in a beginning sense. It's a, it's a come to know. It's to gain or receive knowledge, to possess information about 
And I think what it's reflecting is that through the passage of time, Jesus has observed humankind and seen this borne out in so many different ways and over so many different centuries, this mindset of most believers. We also see that Jesus knew all people. It's going to be illustrated as we go forward in the book of John. In fact, I'll get there in a second. Notice the very last phrase in verse 25. He knew what was in man. Look at the very first phrase in chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man. He knew all men. He knew what was in man. Oh, by the way, there, is a, there was a man. It ties us directly flow. Now, he's going to illustrate how he knows all people through the story of Nicodemus and also the Samaritan woman when we get to chapter 4 and really throughout the rest of the book as he deals with people. See, he knew what motivated people. He knew how people thought. He knew how people reacted to things. Jesus understood all of these things. He knew people inside and out is really what we're saying here. And so he knew that many trusted in him salvation, but they still wanted to get what they wanted to get out of their life. They trusted in him as salvation, but they still had an agenda that they wanted to accomplish through Jesus. And so Jesus knew that many trusted in him simply for this, deliverance from Rome, exaltation of the nation of Israel. Again, very pro-Israel, very nationalistic. And so this is why some of their misaligned interests is what John the Baptist and Jesus were addressing early in their ministry. You know, we talked about this uh, at length in John chapter one, but when John the Baptist said, repent, he was not telling them to turn from their sins. That is, that is reading too much into the text. What is he telling me? He's telling them to change their mind. What kind of mindset did they need to change? What the Messiah was going to accomplish, what the Messiah did, how God provided righteousness. See, the pharisaical mindset was, this is how God provides righteousness. You got to be a Jew, descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You got to be a physical descendant. You got to keep the law. You got to be circumcised. You do those three things, you're in the kingdom. You got the righteousness God requires. That's not how God provides righteousness. And as everyone sits here in this building this morning, and those joining us on live stream sits there, we've got to understand one thing about the Bible. God does not grade on the curve. That sounds like really bad news, but I got some good news coming. God is not great on the curve. He requires perfect righteousness from everybody. He's not going to accept your best effort. He's not going to accept you trying harder to live a more religious, godly life because every amount of effort you put in is unacceptable because God requires perfect righteousness to enter heaven. And if you followed me so far, you're thinking to myself, well, you're probably thinking, well, ain't no one going to heaven then. That's good. We're, we're in a good spot. We're in a good mental spot if you heard that because that's exactly what I'm saying. The good news of the gospel, as you read through Romans chapter 1 and 2 and 3 and 4 and 5, you see this concept come through over and over again. In fact, let's just turn there. I hadn't planned on that. Let's go to Romans chapter 3, verse 21. Romans chapter 3, verse 21. It says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, how? Simply put, through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. See, you don't get the righteousness of God by trying harder to be righteous. See, that's, that's the worldly secular mindset. That's the natural way to think about this thing. God says, you don't have righteousness. I require perfect righteousness. I wanna provide it for you in the gospel of my dear son. 
When my son died for you on the cross and rose again, when you put your faith in him, I will credit his righteousness to your account. You get to walk into heaven, bursting the front doors open because of what that man did for you. Not coming in the back door, trying to slink in, hoping you did enough good works. God is interested in one good work and will you trust in it? It's the good work of what Jesus accomplished for you 2,000 years ago. The message of the gospel is will you trust in what Jesus did? And quite frankly, you either trust in what Jesus did or you don't. Many religious people say, oh yeah, I like Jesus, but I also gotta do this. You're not trusting in Jesus then. You're trusting in your good works. You're trusting in some level of goodness. It's kind of like being pregnant. You either are or you ain't. You're not kinda, right? And so much of religion teaches this kinda righteousness. No, you're either righteous, you've got God's righteousness, or you don't. And the only way to get it is God has done it all. Well, you trust in his solution. That's really where it comes back to. And see, these people had trusted, I believe, in Jesus Christ. They had been credited with the righteousness of God, but they still had their previous agenda on the front burner of their mind. They're like, oh, cool, Messiah, let's get these Romans out of Jesus. When are we gonna start kicking these guys out? We saw what you did in the temple. Let's get the Romans out of here now. Like, let's go next door to the Antonia Fortress. Let's start busting those guys out of here. That was their mindset. Jesus said, I'm not gonna trust myself to that mob rule mentality. In fact, this is what's so interesting. Verse 25, you know, Jesus doesn't even need anyone to testify what's in man because he knows. He just, it wasn't like Jesus was, was taking a poll amongst his disciples. What do you think people are like? You know, what do you think they're thinking right now? He knows. He didn't need any extra testimony. He didn't need anybody to tell him what was in man. He had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. And again, it, I've said this before, but it wasn't like Jesus was some newbie relative to dealing with people. I mean, he's, he created them. He knows the frailties that mankind have. He knows how people are geared and sometimes single focus with their agenda. A lot of times it takes a lot to bump us off of our hobby horses. Does anyone in here have a hobby horse that they kind of, you know, one string on that, that banjo of life that you just hit more than the other strings on your banjo? I mean, we, we know it would take a lot to bump us off of those hobby horses. Well, this is the case with this group that Jesus is dealing in. And not only does he know all men, but Jesus knew. It's imperfect tense. It, it, he had been knowing this continually. Imperfect tense talks about continual action in the past. He's been knowing this is kind of the idea that's being communicated. But again, not only does he know all people, but we learn here that he knows what's in all people. That's very significant. That's a significant statement. And you know, he can't base his future mission. He can't entrust his mission here, especially in his earthly ministry, to people who have indwelling sin and frailties galore and agenda to make him king. He just, he won't entrust himself. He is on the father's plan. He's on the father's timetable. He's not going to let somebody ram him through and bust up the timing that God has established even through the prophetic word. And so Jesus had seen this frailty in mankind all throughout the history of mankind, especially in the nation of Israel. Just do a, a cursory read over the nation of Israel and their history. We can see this, this frailty in mankind, that, that many, in many ways, mankind is not to be trusted. And no offense to the promise keeper movement, but there's only one promise keeper that actually keeps his promises. And it isn't the guy that gets up on stage and is like, oh, I'm going to keep. It's not him. Whoever it is, it's not that guy. 
It's God Almighty. He's the promise keeper. He's the only promise keeper. And so Jesus had seen these frailties. I think what's a really fascinating point is that he, in this day, in the church age, entrusts his plan of building the church to us. That's scary. I mean, have, I mean, it's scary when I look in the mirror. I don't know if it's scary for you when you look in the mirror. But praise God, I mean, he does indwell us with his spirit. And we can walk by faith, presenting our members to the Lord to be utilized and animated by him to fulfill his purposes. So that's all good. But it is a little, <laughs> it is a little scary that he's entrusting the building of his church to, to human ministry and human ministers. But um, praise God, he's got, he's got a system in place to do that. And so um, we, we see that he does it at this point. But in this stage of his uh, earthly ministry, he does not entrust himself to this mob mentality. I've pointed this out, but as we go into chapter three, we're gonna spill into chapter three this morning. We're not gonna get too far into the story of Nicodemus. But the connection is evident. The the, the author's flow, if you will, John the Apostle, in terms of what he's trying to do here, is verse 23, he says, or verse 24, I'm sorry, he knew all men, verse 25, he knew what was in man, verse one of chapter three, there was a man. Now he's gonna illustrate for us how Jesus had this keen insight into people and what people needed. In fact, when, when Nicodemus comes to Jesus, you can imagine Nicodemus comes for a reason. He's got an agenda. He wants to find out some things from Jesus. And Jesus, at about verse three, after Nicodemus makes his introduction, he's like, hold on, Nicodemus. I, I kind of see your train track going this way. We're going this way. Because Nicodemus, you may have lots of theological questions here, but I want to talk to you about your greatest need. And this is what he's going to do with Nicodemus. See, theological questions are all right. There's nothing wrong with those. It's great to talk. Theology is try to, it's great to try to provide answers. But when someone has not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the primary message they need to hear is the gospel. And they need to hear it over and over and over again. They need to be brought back to that. They need to be brought back to that understanding. Many people will come in and they will brag about how good they are. They will brag about how religious they are. They will show their, the degrees they got. The, the, they'll keep track of the amount of times they go to church. They'll keep track of how many times they teach Sunday school. They'll keep track of this. And when you ask them, well, what about Jesus Christ? They'll say, oh yeah, him too. And you're like, no, <laughs> him only, him only as We've discussed with the righteousness. And so here is Nicodemus coming. A lot to be proud of, by the way, in this culture. Nicodemus was, uh, as they, you know, as we used to say in high school, the, the acronym, the BMOC, right? The big man on campus. You know, Nicodemus walked down the street. People were like, oh man, let's, here, let's let Nicodemus go by. I mean, he was a, he was a, a rock star religiously in the Jewish community. So he had a lot of things going for him. But what he didn't understand completely until after his conversation with Jesus is how great his Savior was. That's what he didn't understand. He's going to understand that, I think, at some point in his life. I think Nicodemus ends up becoming a believer. But at this point, he thought, man, how awesome is my religious accomplishment? I think he's going to leave here and say, wow, how awesome is the Savior? How awesome is God's plan for righteousness? And we get into chapter 3, and we look at this first verse we learn a little bit about Nicodemus here. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. Now, 
John calls him a, a Pharisee. That actually helps, gives us some insight into who he was. He was also a ruler of the Jews. Just based on these two descriptions, we know a couple things about Nicodemus. He was nationalistic. He was pro-Israel, which means he's anti-Romans. Get them out of here. Let's, let's get the, the nation of Israel back on track. But he was also a meticulous observer of Israel's religious laws. In fact, we know about the Pharisees that, you know, the Mosaic law had something like 613 commands. The Pharisees built an entire fencing system around those 613 commands and added thousands of more. It'd be like we came up here and this wood piece was a little shaky and someone said, hey, John, do not step on that wood piece or you're going to fall, right? That would kind of be a law. I mean, it'd be a helpful law, helpful command. I don't want to fall. But what if I just came up to it and said, you know, and the next person that spoke, I, I didn't say, hey, don't step on the wood piece. I said, hey, don't get five feet within that piece of wood. Whoa. And that was the Pharisees' mindset of the Mosaic Law. Let me, let me just keep them further and further back from the edge. That was kind of their, their heart behind it. But obviously, by the time Jesus' day, they had drawn so many lines around the law that, that most people were like, you know what? I think I'm just going to stand here. I don't think I can move. You know, it's like, if I move here, I'm going to break this command. If I move here, I'm going to break this. And so this is the group that Nicodemus comes out of. We learn elsewhere uh, in John chapter 7 that Nicodemus was most likely a member of the prestigious Sanhedrin, which was the supreme judicial council in the nation of Israel. In fact, go to John chapter 7, because this next point we're going to pull from John 7 as well. John chapter 7 in verse 50. Now, it doesn't specifically say that he was a member of the Sanhedrin, but the way John describes the, the Pharisees and the Jews, the, the rulers of Israel, he's describing this body. And they're meeting here um, to discuss Jesus Christ. We'll get there uh, at some point in John 7. But John seven fifty, Nicodemus, uh, who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? They answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. So they're ready to condemn Jesus. Nicodemus kind of speaks up and says, well, do we, should we really judge him? Should we hear him? Should we bring him in and ask? He's, he's kind of reasonable. That kind of brings up the next point that he, his character is he was fair-minded and rational. He just, you kind of see that from some of the passages that we look at. In fact, we're going to see in the way he addresses Jesus in verse 2 that he's not your typical Pharisee. Your typical Pharisee was hostile, obnoxious, aggressive. Nicodemus is none of those things in this interaction uh, with Jesus. One of the things that we will build a lot on just as we go forward is is what we learn about Nicodemus in John chapter 3, verse 10. As we learn about him, Jesus is going to say to him in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? So he's called the teacher of Israel. It's articulated there. You're the teacher of Israel, meaning that he was a prominent and well-known teacher. In fact, he may have been the most prominent and well-known rabbi in Israel at this time. We don't know. But he was definitely a prominent rabbi. He could have been the highest viewed rabbi in the entire nation. Now, some of you are going to be familiar with the name Gamaliel. Gamaliel was Paul's teacher. That's who discipled Paul in the ways of Judaism. He kind of comes out in the book of Acts. And many people have speculated that uh, Nicodemus was actually higher in reputation than Gamaliel, but when he became a believer in Jesus Christ, that Gamaliel took his place as the preeminent teacher in Israel. We don't know that for sure, 
but he was definitely a teacher. It's possible the, the comment in verse 10 is more generic, like, you're not the student, you're the teacher, you should know these things. But it seems like Jesus is expecting something from, Nic- from Nicodemus, that, that he should be the one who knows the things that he's going to talk to him about in chapter 3. And so the point is this, if anyone was serious about religion, godliness, or spirituality to this, uh, in this day, it would have been Nicodemus. And this is why what Jesus is going to say to him is so startling. This is why it's so shocking. In fact, I remember sitting with, with a man one time and sharing the, getting the, the opportunity to share the gospel with him. And I started here with Nicodemus because this man had a very religious background. He had a, a church religious background. I just went on to describe Nicodemus much the way I'm describing him to you. And I said, and I just asked him this question. And I said, you know what Jesus told Nicodemus? And he said, no. And he said, basically, Nicodemus, you're not good enough to get to heaven on your own. And the guy looked at me and says, well, if that's true, and he used some very colorful language as, as an unbeliever might, he used some very colorful language, he's basically, I don't have a chance. If Nicodemus doesn't have a chance, I don't have a chance. Again, very good understanding of what's going on here because that's exactly what's going on. Jesus is gonna say, Nicodemus, you're lacking something. And Nicodemus is like, man, what's am I lacking? You know, he's, you know, see him like mentally struggling. Well, how am I lacking? And Jesus is going to describe that to him. But before we get into the story, and, and actually it's going to be a couple weeks with the Christmas break, but before we get into the story this morning, I want to just look at Nicodemus's approach and his greeting, because I think it tells a lot about his, his mindset at this time and his attitude toward Jesus. Verse two, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So again, notice the lack of hostility. He, again, he's not a typical Pharisee here. He's approaching Jesus with respect. One of the things that we learn right off the bat is he comes to Jesus by night. Now, this is a pretty significant comment. Now, I don't, there's, there's multiple reasons why this might have come place. Let me just kind of give you a couple. One, would be that Nicodemus is still unsure of his evaluation. He, he's seen the signs, right? That's, that's what brought him out, verse two. We, we've seen these signs. No one can do these signs unless God's with him. So he wants to dig a little bit deeper with Jesus, see who he is, make sure he's evaluating him correctly. And so based on that, and because of the response we saw from the religious leaders in chapter seven, he probably didn't want to know his buddies or his co-laborers to know he was going to Jesus. He didn't know how they would view that. Oh, Nicodemus is hanging out with the non-cool kids, you know, or whatever. So let's quit inviting them to our lunch table. So there might've been that response. So he comes incognito privately. I think another strong potential reason is that he wanted uninterrupted time with them. You know, you come into Jesus during the day, he's got crowds surrounding him at this point. The multitudes are seeing these signs and and Nicodemus isn't going to be able to have an uninterrupted conversation with him. So I think that's a very real possibility too. He found out where he was. I just want some uninterrupted time with him to have a little Q&A, go back and forth. Either way, he comes to him by night. We're not sure of the exact motivation, but I think one of those is probably accurate, if not maybe all of those. Now, what's really interesting and we would not pick this up as a Gentile reader just because, you know, we didn't live 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. But for Nicodemus to address Jesus as a rabbi here, it's a huge compliment, huge compliment. And we've got to understand why. In fact, he was, if he was, and we were, we're right, he was the premier rabbi in Israel. It, it would be like, 
You know, somebody in our day that has theological training, he's got, you know, multiple PhDs, THDs next to his name, and he comes to an unlearned, untrained person and says, man, I'm really impressed with you, doctor. Would you teach me? You're like, no, no, you're the doctor. <laughs> you're not, the, I'm not even a nurse, right? You know, it's like, I'm not a doctor. I'm not even a nurse, right? So, but, but this is kind of the level of respect that, that Nicodemus comes right out of the chief, says, Rabbi, and I want you to notice something too. And, and maybe you noticed it when we read through, but notice the first person plural pronoun that he uses. He doesn't say, Rabbi, I know that your T says, we know. He uses the word we. Now, who's he talking about? Again, it could be just his way of saying himself. It could, he could be representing others in the Sanhedrin. We know later that Joseph of Arimathea becomes a believer in Jesus Christ. Maybe at this point, they're, they're bouncing, man, what, what's going on here? And he, I'll go visit him and I'll, I'll find out for us, you know? Could be that. He could just be referring to the buzz in town. We don't really know. It's just, I think it's interesting. He doesn't say I, he says we. There's somebody else possibly in his party. And so one of the reasons this is so significant that he addresses him as rabbi is Jesus wasn't qualified to be a rabbi. He was not a rabbi by any stretch of the Jewish definition of rabbi because to be a rabbi, you had to study under a rabbi. You'd had to have formal rabbinical training. If you didn't have either of those two, you could never be called a rabbi. And we know about Jesus's upbringing. He didn't sit at the feet of a rabbi. He sat at the feet of his dad. He was a carpenter's son. He was in a nowheresville village called Nazareth. Remember John 146? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That little podunk town. (laughs) Something good came out of Nazareth. (laughs) That's what the Bible teaches. But Jesus was not a rabbi. So this is an extremely high honor. And the reason why Nicodemus addressed him this way is found in the very next phrase. And, And it kind of brings us full circle with the debate in chapter two at the end. What was it that God used to get Nicodemus's attention to validate and verify the person of Jesus Christ? What did God use? Signs. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with that. That was his whole mode of operation at this point in history was to validate and verify Jesus's identity and his message. It worked. Nicodemus saw the signs. He said, I got to check this guy out. This, he could be the one. And this is why Nicodemus comes into here. And it's interesting because Nicodemus was convinced here at some level by the signs that Jesus was performing at the Passover. Again, being convinced of the signs was not a bad thing. It's exactly what they were designed to do. And so we see Nicodemus is responding there as well. Just as a side note, uh, you might be just interested in this. It's just kind of a passing side note. Um, It's not stated, but Nicodemus might have also been impressed with the cleansing of the temple. Remember, I, I told you last week that there was a a mindset in Judaism that, that did not appreciate the animal sellers and the money changers in the, in the court of the Gentiles. Those were Jewish merchants selling to Jewish travelers, but they were disrupting the worship that Gentiles could have of Yahweh by setting up in their area. And many Jews thought that was a disruption of the sanctity of the temple. In fact, what we learned from history is that the Pharisees actually had no vested interest in the administration of the temple at this point in history. It was under the domain of the Sadducees. So it was kind of like their political rival doing something that they didn't like. And they were kind of glad. They were probably over there like, man, I like this Jesus guy. Man, take nailing these Sadducees for me. You know, so it might have been that. It's not brought up, but it's possible that he was impressed by Jesus's cleansing and clearing of the temple. 
But again, by saying that God was with him, Nicodemus was insinuating that God the Holy Spirit was doing these miracles through Jesus. Even as we get into the introduction with his interaction with Nicodemus, we see a lot of good things going on with Nicodemus. I mean, he is grappling with who Jesus is, and he's doing it honestly, humbly, with respect, no hostility. He's coming to learn. He's coming as a student. Now, what's really tragic, and we, won't, we don't have time to go there, but if, if you remember in, in, the, in Matthew chapter 12, Nicodemus' co-workers, all of the other Pharisees and religious leaders of his day, they attribute Jesus' miracles to who? Satan. The exact opposite. Nicodemus says, you know what? We know that the signs you're doing are of God because no one could do them unless God is with them. His cohorts later in Jesus' ministry says, oh, he just does it by the power of Satan. So Nicodemus, a lot of good things going on here. So like I mentioned, it's ironic because as we get into verse three, Nicodemus doesn't even get to ask a question. Jesus just takes the conversation and puts it on a different rail to begin with. And he's going to take, again, the conversation to the area of his biggest need, not the area of his biggest curiosities. We'll pick up there the next time we crack into the book of John. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. And, and thank you for just this opportunity in the book of John to really just take into mind the life of the Lord Jesus and his character and the things that are important to him, the things that he says. And Lord, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, as we behold you, as we just by faith enjoy you and behold you, uh, it says that your spirit will transform us into your image. And that's what we want, Lord. We want to grow spiritually so that we are in fellowship with you more consistently. We know that we do that as we occupy ourselves with you and enjoy you. And we pray that that is really the outcome uh, of our time this morning, that you would be exalted in our thinking as we leave here this, this morning, we go about our week, as we get uh, prepared to celebrate your birth next weekend, that our, mind, uh, our mind's eye would be constantly elevated a few notches so that we're just setting our mind on things above. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.